Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, for your watch care over our lives that is so marvelous and so personal and constant, we praise you. And for the ways in which you direct us by your providences, awakening us at times by pain, that having gone astray, we might keep your word and giving us unexpected help in times of difficulty to melt our hearts and make us trust you afresh. And for the way in which when we put your love to the test and to the trial and prove it for ourselves, we discover how good and kind you are. We thank you that you so prefer teaching us, encouraging us, instructing us, exposing us, challenging us, illuminating our minds, directing our ways by the word that you have given. Because you are a kindly Father, you would rather touch us by your word than touch us with the force of your hand. And we pray that for us Again, we come to your word that its disciplines may be our disciplines, that its truth may be the guide of our minds, and that everything that you say to us from that word tonight, we will embrace and afresh discover that your will is good and perfect and acceptable. So help us, Lord, we pray, as we come to the end of this Lord's Day, in Jesus Christ. Our Savior's name we ask it. Amen. Please be seated. Now this evening in our readings in Paul's letter to the Romans, we come to the 13th chapter of Romans, and this evening to the first seven verses, and I want to direct your attention to them as we read them. You'll find the passages in the Pew Bible in page 948, 948. So let us hear God's Word. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, that is, conscience, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. 
respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. One of the wonderful things about the gospel that makes it such a great thing to be a Christian is that the gospel actually works everywhere. There is no nation on the face of the earth where the gospel does not work. There are no circumstances in which people can find themselves in which the gospel does not work. And one of the great joys of being a member of what is in fact a worldwide international family is to meet brothers and sisters from other parts of the world and to learn from them how the gospel works in their lives in circumstances that on occasion are entirely different from ours. The gospel works if you are rich, and the gospel works if you are poor. The gospel works if you are educated, and the gospel works if you have little or no education at all. The gospel works in the West, and the gospel works in the East. The gospel works in the North, the gospel works in the South. There is no form of political government imaginable on our planet under which the gospel will not work. The gospel works under monarchy. The gospel works in a republic. The gospel works in an oligarchy. The gospel works in a democracy. The gospel works under Marxist communism. The gospel works in lands that are dominated by Islam. There is nowhere where the gospel does not work. And what Paul has brought us to in these sections in Romans from the beginning of chapter 12 to the end of chapter 16 is in a variety of ways descriptions of how the gospel works in every conceivable situation in life and for everyone on the planet. And actually, it's when we get here that we realize afresh what he meant when he said that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You do not need to live in a democracy to be a vital Christian. Indeed, as we well know, many of the most vital Christians in the world do not live in democracies. And even if I just speak for myself, I say that Christians I have met who have lived under communist regimes have been Christians whose shoelaces I have felt myself to be unfit either to loose or to tie. There is nothing that can restrain gospel life in this world. And so as Paul explores this, it is, I think, in the letter to the Romans absolutely inevitable that he comes to speak about the way in which the gospel works out among these Roman Christians in relationship to the Roman government. 
He has urged us to give ourselves without reservation to the Lord in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And then he's shown how the gospel changes our disposition to ourselves, transforms our relationships within the church, makes a difference in terms of those who oppose us. And now it's as well, as, as well he, he, he looks up a little and he says, and it makes a difference to the way in which you think and live under the particular government that pertains in your life. A good number of modern commentators see no connection whatsoever between this section and anything that's preceded in this letter. But it seems to me quite obvious that when Paul is writing this letter to people who live in two worlds, they are in Christ, called to be saints at Rome. It is inevitable that somewhere or another in the course of his exposition, he would come to detailed questions about what exactly does it mean to be a Christian in Rome at this time, with the shadow of the emperor Nero that is to become so dark in future years hanging over you. What does it mean to be holy in the unholy Roman Empire? What does it mean to live as a Christian in a totalitarian state? And it's fascinating that he comes and deals with this question in a very general way, giving us principles that are applicable under any conceivable kind of government. And he answers the question, how are we as Christians to work out our Christian commitment in the order of this world? Because you may just have noticed that you are not yet in heaven. And perhaps one of the things that concerns him, it certainly concerned him in Corinth, didn't it? One of the things that concerned him was Christians who felt that their lives had been so transformed that their feet didn't touch the ground. I happened to turn on the radio to hear if I could some, hear some heartwarming Christian music on the way into the church picnic this afternoon, and I heard a woman singing about the fact that we, we live. It was a kind of dooby-doo song, but it was about how we live on a higher plane. And I had, a, I had a picture of her almost uh, elevating herself off the ground as though this world doesn't touch us now that we are Christians and we don't really… we're on a higher plane altogether. We don't live the Christian life at 33,000 feet unless we're in a plane. We live the Christian life here and now down here in the mire and the dirt and the reality of the world in which we live. And Paul is pressing home in these chapters. How do you do that in a murky world? Indeed, God willing, as we shall see in the chapters that follow, how do you do that when church gets a bit murky as well? And perhaps there were Christians who had begun to think, if we belong to a kingdom that's not of this world, why should we pay taxes to a kingdom that is of this world? 
I have heard there are Christians today who think that. And Paul is saying, get real. Live in this world. Your calling is to serve Christ in the world that is, not in the world you would like there to be, so that life would be easy for you and all your principles would have no difficulty in being worked out. Because how then would you really be a witness to the world? And we know, at least from the background to Paul's letter to the Romans, that uh, there had already been some unrest in Rome, you remember how Claudius uh, had thrown out the Jews in 49 AD, and that was actually how Aquila and Priscilla had kind of eventually come into contact with the Apostle Paul. They'd been thrown out of Rome, and we know that the reason the Jews were thrown out of Rome, and remember, Christians were regarded simply as another sect of the Jews. The reason they'd been thrown out of Rome the authorities tell us, was because of, a, because of unrest over somebody called Crestus, which, which most scholars of antiquity assume is a reference to Jesus. And so there were already tensions for the Roman church about living at the epicenter of the Roman Empire. Not only so, another thing we know, there's nothing new under the sun, is that the government was planning to bring in new tax laws. And one of those tax laws had to do with indirect taxation. Indeed, one other thing we learn from antiquity is that in 58 AD, which is very shortly after Paul writes to the Romans, there, there was a convulsive revolt against this new taxation. I remember in the days of Mrs. Thatcher's government in the United Kingdom that she invented a new tax, and there was such revolt against it that it was withdrawn. So apparently sometimes, I'm not commending tax revolts, but apparently, at least in Britain, actually the Scots never managed to push it back, but the English managed to push it back. So problems about taxation, stress, inequalities, inequities, nothing new under the sun. My dear friends, I think we modern Christians are so pathetic. We get a little pinprick, and you would think it had become impossible to live the Christian life. When we have not, as the letter to the Hebrews says, we've not come nearly to shedding blood for the Christian faith. And so Paul is seeking to help these Roman Christians, I think particularly because they live at the very epicenter of the Roman Empire, to work out what it means to be a Christian in this context. And I do want you to notice what is actually very obvious, but sometimes overlooked. He is not here giving us a treatise on jurisprudence or government law. He's telling us how to be a Christian 
no matter what the government. And I want you to notice another thing that actually is as plain as the nose on your face, or at least on my face. He's not here directing his words to government. He's directing his words to Christian believers. And that's very important to remember. He does describe here what government is called to be. But what he actually says is, this is what Christians are called to be. Therefore, be Christians. And I say that for this reason. All kinds of questions pop into people's minds in the West, in the free West. Oh, but what do you do if, and what do you do if, and what do you do if? And my characteristic response is, when did if ever happen in your life? And the fascinating thing to me is that Western Christians read this passage and all kinds of problems pop up in their minds. By and large, Christians under persecution have found this passage to be a great directive to how to live the Christian life under governments that are oppressive to the Christian gospel. So Paul is not speaking here to armchair theologians who want to discuss what if. He's speaking to Christians who want to know how do we live since we belong to Jesus Christ. So let the academics discuss the what ifs. And let the believers listen to the exhortations of the Word of God. And if we do that, you'll notice that Paul is emphasizing essentially two things. He's teaching the Roman Christians the divinely ordained role of the civil powers. And he's also teaching Christians how to respond to that divinely ordained role. And he uses, you'll see, very strong language. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. What's he saying here? Well, actually, one of the things he's saying is that God, in his marvelous uh, kindness to the human race, has given us government. More than that, says Paul, the government that exists, exists under the authority of God. Now, why is that so significant? It's significant because it's so easy for us to endanger our souls, Paul is teaching us here, in the friction we may feel with government masking a friction we feel because in some circumstances we are unwilling to kiss the rod of the providences of God. And Paul is saying here, I think pretty clearly, whatever government you are under, you need to remember God has not lost control. God works all things together according to the counsel of his own will. There is no authority. Remember how Jesus said that to Pontius Pilate, to the man 
who was legally speaking responsible for issuing his execution order. You would have no authority unless that authority came from above. And I don't think Jesus is just saying came from the Roman emperor. I think one of the things that stabilized the Lord Jesus Christ in that situation is that he knew if Pilate's authority came from the Roman emperor, the Roman emperor's authority in this particular situation actually came from his heavenly Father. So we submit ourselves to every providence of God as we recognize that he is the one who gives us government. Actually, that's one of the characteristics of persecuted Christians. They complain far less than unpersecuted Christians. Why? That's a very simple reason. They expect Christians to be persecuted. That's what Christians are for, to be persecuted. And you see, when we understand this, we're able to look beyond the horizon of civil government to the government of Almighty God. Actually, it's the very same principle Paul uses when he speaks about the attitude of slaves to their masters. He tells slaves to serve their masters without complaint. Now, why? Because they have a master in heaven whom they are really serving. Actually, the problem with us when we are constantly complaining and nagging about the small inconveniences created for us by government is we've really lost sight of the government of God. We're not able to look beyond the government to ask the questions our forefathers asked. If this is the government God has given to us, what is God saying to us in this situation? How is going to change us in this situation? And that's a really staggering thing, isn't it? So government is instituted by God. He says it's appointed by God. Its authority is from God. And he says in verses 3 and 4, it is for our good because it serves to punish wrong and reward good. The magistrate does not bear the sword in vain. Indeed, you'll notice he uses staggering language. He uses the word to describe the governor, which in the rest of the New Testament is used in the context of Christian spiritual worship and service. So, he says, the church has ministers appointed by God, and Christians have ministers of God appointed in society in order that they may be in subjection to that government. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? Staggering thing. And it's a very realistic thing. We need government. And it's a wonderful view 
because it helps us to see the government we have is not actually the government that determines our lives. And the mistake so many Christians make is they can't see past the government to the God who has given the government. That's actually the reason so many conservative Christians become at least, may I say this to you from my heart, I hear them speaking much more animatedly about politics than I ever hear them speaking about the gospel. Isn't that true? Isn't that your experience as well? What does that say about us? It says that we live our lives in a horizontal way. And unlike our forefathers, we don't see beyond the horizon to the vertical, to the God who governs all things, so that we bow before His providence and say, how do we live out the Christian life in this context as citizens of two worlds? That's the other thing that Paul speaks about here. Not only that government is given by God, but about, therefore, how we are to respond to government. And he says, here is the first thing. Do good things. Do what is good. Do what is beneficent. What does he mean by that? He says, give yourself to benefit the society in which you live. I sometimes, I'm afraid, get weary of people who are always complaining about the government they have when they are doing nothing to benefit the society in which we live. It's just all talk, you see. And therefore, it doesn't mean what government there is going to be. They are not going to benefit the society in which they live. And that's what, that's what Christians are called to be. And we find that right throughout the Scriptures. You remember Jeremiah's word to the people in Babylon, that they were to serve the king of Babylon and live, that they were to, that they were to work for the welfare of the city. Dear ones, let's not ever be those who complain about government if we are doing absolutely nothing for the welfare of the city. That just brings the obloquy of the world upon us, just as evangelical Christians were so rightly criticized for opposing abortion, but doing absolutely nothing to serve people so that they might be free, so that the children might live, so that the children might have a home to care for them. Let's not dare be critical like that if we're not prepared to love to give ourselves. That's what Paul is saying. But these Roman Christians, they could say, look, Nero is just about to… We've seen some of the tendencies in Nero. We've seen the Roman emperors. You, Paul, you've suffered at the hands of the Romans, even if you're a Roman citizen. We've got to fight back. No, he says, serve back. Let's get rid of that word fight. Serve back. 
Because the only weapons with which we fight are spiritual. Prayer. 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 Why is it so many Christians I've met in my life who are gung-ho about politics are absent from prayer meetings? Because their weapons are carnal and horizontal. And so he says, be in subjection not only because revolt against the government will bring the sword upon you, but for conscience sake. Why for conscience sake? The government has nothing whatsoever to do with your conscience. You know that. The government has no right to your conscience. So why do you do it for conscience sake? It's because you've seen beyond the government to God and you do it for God. Because he wants, he wants his people to be an alternative kind of culture. Not simply an antithetical culture, banging heads with the culture that is, but a different kind of culture altogether. That was what Jesus said when he faced the power of the Roman Empire. He said... My kingdom isn't butting heads with your kingdom because my kingdom isn't of this world. It operates under any government in this world. Are we sometimes so ignorant that we think that the gospel's prosperity is tied to who is in the White House? Tell that to the Chinese. Tell that to the South Koreans. Tell that to the Ugandans. We live in the lap of luxury, don't we? We have all the freedoms we could ever need. We never really pray but we stand on our high horses to criticize the government. Don't criticize unless you're prepared to pray, to give, to serve, to ask the question, how can we, how can we create a totally different kind of community where we're on the stretch, where we give, where we take in, where if there is something that is contrary to God's law, we bend ourselves down to make it possible for people in every kind of circumstance to find that God's law is actually good and healthy for their lives, and God's people are here to serve them because they serve a far higher authority than the authority of the government. Now, there are many Christians who have believed through the ages that Paul is speaking here only when there is good government. That is to say, Paul wrote here in the middle of the 50s AD when uh, Nero was still under control. He had a particularly fine educator, did Nero. That may be true historically, but I think it's wrong theologically. For two reasons. The first is this. 
that Christians experienced by this time with the Roman government was actually mixed. Their Savior had been crucified by it. Oh yes, we might say that was just Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the Roman government as far as our Lord Jesus was concerned. Paul had already been mistreated. Claudius had exiled Christians from Rome. And strikingly, even when we come to Peter's first letter, when we come to Paul's closing letters, we find the same principle worked through that Christians are able to serve in whatever government they find themselves under and do good to the city. And it's wonderful to see in the New Testament we get just these little, this, these little hints that there were people right at the very heart of the Roman Empire who were able to serve the Lord Jesus Christ at the heart of the Roman Empire. Oh, but what if they say, do something that's against God's law? Well, what do you do? You do what God says, and you take the consequences the government brings because you're prepared to suffer and sacrifice. Remember the Hebrew midwives? I'd like to meet some of them in heaven. Get all those baby boys killed. What do the Hebrew midwives do? The Hebrew midwives submit themselves to what they know even before the Ten Commandments have been given, to God's desire for life. And then they say, they, you know, these Hebrew boys, they come out so quickly. Just can't keep cop. Go up. Which actually may indicate to us that uh, not everybody is entitled to the whole story. Or Daniel's three companions. Our God is able to rescue us from the burning fiery furnace. But if not we still refuse to bow before idols. Now, you see, here's the point about this. Before you revolt against government, you've got to have a life in which you've refused to bow to idols, irrespective of government. There's the rub. Or the apostles, you've got to stop talking about Jesus. You may exercise whatever form of government you want, but we will not stop talking about Jesus. We will obey God rather than obey men. All of this is true. But most of that is not where we are, is it? When did the state police arrive at your door and tell you to bow down before an idol? When did somebody last tell you that you would be burnt unless you gave up being a Christian? That's a challenge, isn't it? As I said this morning, we major in our luxury, we major on minors, minor on majors, and we fuss and complain about our government. That's okay if you're praying. Are you praying? 
You know, people used to say, we get the government we deserve. I sometimes wonder, my friends, if this is the most prayerless season on this landmass in all its history and also the most complaining season among Christians. And so there is something here about the, the powerful balance of a different kind of community that finds its way into service in the community, that does good to the city so that the city prospers. Not because of the kind of government we have. When we have the kind of government that I want, then I will. No, 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 whatever the kind of government you have, the Scripture teaches, serve for the good of the city. What are you and I doing, incidentally, for the good of the city of Columbia? Every time I complain about something in the city of Columbia, is there at least, at the very least, is there a balance in that? That I'm doing something to counteract that? That I'm giving to counteract that? That I'm praying to God that He would have mercy to counteract that? Otherwise, we are simply like the world and we simply play at politics. You know, one of the striking things in all this especially when Christians have found themselves under the severe persecution of governments, that those Christians, right from Justin Martyr in the second century to Joseph Tsan in Romania under the days of Ceausescu, do you know what they have all said to persecuting government? We are the best citizens you will find anywhere. I think that's a magnificent thing to be able to say, don't you? Don't you really? Do you think we could say that? You know, some kind of little persecution broke out that we weren't allowed to meet at 8.30 or at 6 o'clock or something like that. Do you, think, do you think that our elders could go to wherever we needed to go and say, look, we're your very best citizens? And if they said, well, how do we know this? How are you our very best citizens? Would we be able to demonstrate it by what we do in our love for the city out of conscience towards God? Now, of course, there are all kinds of interesting theoretical questions here. I have two. One theoretical question is, was Charles I, the king of Scotland and England, rightly executed by the British Parliament, actually the English Parliament, in 1649? Or was that unlawfully resisting authority? And slightly for my amusement, I read a couple of books during the course of this week by outstandingly well-known American Christians, family, household names among us, and interestingly, I saw both of them saying they thought the American Revolution was a form of contradiction of this teaching of Scripture. Wow. That's interesting. But it's theoretical. So I don't want to spend my time discussing the theory when God tells me to do something for the good of the city. We're not theoretical Christians. Some of us, thank God, work in theoretical worlds 
where there may be advantages in considering these things so that we may learn something from history, ask questions about right application. But most of us are living in this world. And unless I'm mistaken, most of us are not bowed down with a deep concern to pray for the city, to do good to the city. And some of us may be only in danger of criticizing the city and soiling our consciences before God. That's why Christians have a different attitude. They seek to do good, says Paul. They pay their taxes of all kinds. They honor the roles of of the offices of the magistrate. Do you? Do you honor your magistrates? You know, I have taxation without representation, so I can ask that kind of question. Do you? Or just badmouth them? Perhaps not realizing that the more we badmouth them, the more their successors will be demeaned in their office because we have actually bad-mouthed the office itself? Or do we look beyond? Do you look beyond to the providences of God who gives us government? Yes, of course, we are singularly blessed in this. Not all Christians are. We are singularly blessed in this that we can legally remove governments. But in legally removing governments, we bow to the authority, the powers that be, the system that God in His providence has provided for us, whether we like that system or not. We have these glorious freedoms. So let us not be constantly complaining when we have these enormous privileges, and let us as Christians always have in mind that the places in the last century where the gospel has flourished are the very places where those liberties and privileges have been denied to God's people, and they've flourished beyond our imagination. The man who counseled me when I was converted was a man who was thrown out of China in the Boxer Risings. And I don't think he could ever have imagined the way the people of God could flourish under those circumstances. Now, why did the gospel flourish under those circumstances? Because people look beyond the government. To the Lord. Do you see hand of God in our government? Or do you just see the newspapers? It's a challenge, isn't it? You should believe what you read in the Bible more than you believe what you read in the newspaper. So why should we read the newspaper more than some of us read the Bible? You know, I read this 
I think of the history of my own nation, times of oppression of Christians. And I think I'm inclined by nature to say to God, God, could you not have waited a few years before Paul wrote Romans because he surely would have written something different. I don't think he would have. I think this is what he would have written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So let's take hold of our privileges. Let's not be known as people whose focus is on this world's government in the White House rather than this world's government on the throne of heaven. Let's not be those who complain about what's happening but never pray about what's happening. Let's not be those who criticize but never give or serve or love. Otherwise, my friends, sadly, we end up as just a different form of the same society in which we're all living. People with different opinions, but not people with a different master. That's a, that's a very uncomfortable thing for us, is it? But my dear friends, I think I only need to ask you, when did you last obey God who says to you, pray for the authorities over you? Done that today? Did that yesterday? This week? This month? This year? Under the previous administration? Never? Then let us put our hands to our mouths and say, O oh God, help us by your grace to be such a different kind of community that people begin to see, no matter what our circumstances, our God reigns. Would you like to do that? It's not going to be easy for us. Keep challenging one another. Are we doing good for the city? Are we reaching out to the city? Are we helping our government? Are we helping the needy? Are we paying our taxes? Have we clear consciences before God? I, I really wonder what it must have been like to sit in some of these house churches in Rome and hear Paul say this. Paul, it's all right for you. you know, you've always wanted to come to Rome, but you've never been in Rome. But he did go to Rome, didn't he? And that's where he lost his life for the Lord Jesus. So even if this weren't what it is, the inspired Word of God, He's won the right to speak from the suffering He was prepared to endure.
And if we become something like this, then we will do good to the city of Columbia and to the state of South Carolina. And neither the city of Columbia nor the state of South Carolina will immediately recognize the fact that way beyond the city of Columbia is the city of God. Way beyond the state of South Carolina is the state of heaven. And way beyond the White House is the great white throne on which our God and Master sits ruling the universe. So let's be the best citizens God enables us to be. In Jesus' name. Heavenly Father, we open Scripture sometimes scarcely anticipating what it will say to us and how it will search us and challenge us and pull us down and lift us up and search us and bless us. Come to you to confess to you, our Heavenly Father, that we so often are critical of the world in which we live and do so little for it. We speak harshly of governments we have and fail to see the government of the Lord who is on the throne of the universe. We speak strongly and pray feebly, and we ask that you would bring us to repentance, to transformation, and to grace, that our little church here may truly become a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden, a light shining in a dark place that points men and women to Christ. Oh, make us seriously joyful Christians and joyfully serious Christians as we seek to work this out in the world in which we live. And as we pray for our brothers and sisters in far less happy circumstances than we are, who seek to submit to the government that you have given to them in order that the government of the Lord Jesus may be seen in their lives. Bless them tonight, O Lord, and grant them much grace to do good to the cities in which they live. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.